Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. You're listening to Hammer and Nails. This is episode two, Van Melsen and the Laughing Man. Listening to The Woodrow Show. This is your host, Diane Woodrow. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation with renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen as he recounts his involvement in the Hamilton Horror. <clears throat> the widely publicised case concerning the deaths of several youngsters and a haunted house on the Yorkshire coast. Mm-hmm. Once again, we're recording in the quiet seclusion of Rosedale Chapel enclosed by colourful stained-glass windows. Tell me, Peter, Mm. what is it that attracts you to this place? Well, Diane, it may come as a surprise to you to learn that the chapel was originally built as a place for lepers to worship. Really? Indeed. Back then, the fit and the healthy didn't consider it proper to worship alongside lepers. Better to secret them away somewhere. You get my point. Sometimes, when sitting here alone in silent contemplation, I hear the echo of that segregation, and empathise with the shunned. Occasionally, I hear their voices, their prayers. Just listen for a moment. That, Diane, is what attracts me to this place. Hmm, yeah, fascinating. Now, Peter... Previously, we've been discussing the... Yes, yes, yes. The passage in Fisher's Dreams and Visions outlining certain questionable uses for jimson weed. That's right. Jimson weed being the main ingredient found in the tablets you discovered at Sutton Bank. Correct. Would you like a full recap here, Diane? No, no, not necessary. No? Please continue. Okay. Well, as I said before, The next step in my inquiries was to seek out the friends of the deceased, Patrick Jones and Richard Gordon. But after reading that passage in Dreams and Visions, I felt a little trepidation. You see, these young men, boys really, had managed to get their hands on a rare and potent hallucinogen, a psychoactive drug very similar in its effects to the infamous South American brew, ayahuasca. Just how they stumbled upon the drug remains undetermined, though I suspect Jones's extensive collection of rare books might have pointed the boys in the right direction. Yes. If memory serves, it was October the 7th or 8th when I summoned DCI Brent to my door. I was eager to know what, if anything, the police had learned over the preceding days. But Brent had little to tell me other than that the lab had been unable to match the coarse hairs found at the scene, and 
under Smith's fingernails with those belonging to any animal on record. Inconclusive was the official determination. Nor could anything definitive be said of the bite marks on Smith's upper arm, not to mention the claw mark on his face. I asked if he had talked to Smith's friends, Jones and Gordon, to which he said yes, he had, but that the pair hadn't seen their friend for several days, not since parting ways with him on the outskirts of Hamerton, the day of his disappearance. I suspect Brent knew what I was about to ask, before the words left my mouth, as, in response to what must have been a very particular look on my face, he had withdrawn a small notebook from his shirt pocket, and proceeded to write out the boy's addresses. I thanked him for the information, and reassured him that my line of questioning would be strictly professional, which wasn't much by way of reassurance, given the nature of the case, and— the nature of my profession. <laughs> oh, 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 Nancy, oh, oh. get Mr. Blimey. Van Melsen oh. some water, will you? Yeah, yeah, oh. of course. Oh. <laughs> Are you all right? Oh, oh, nothing to worry about, Diane. <laughs> oh, this usually takes care of it. Hmm. <clears throat> Thank you. No problem. Thanks, Nance. Now then, <clears throat> where was I? Ah, I informed Brent that I was keen to visit the boys as soon as possible, for I felt that the clarity with which they'd recall events would only diminish as the days and weeks wore on. So, Brent, sharp as a blade, there on the spot, contacted the parents of Jones and Gordon to inquire as to their availability. Brent was informed that the boys were strictly housebound, both of them afraid to leave their respective homes— following the news of Smith's passing. Secure in the knowledge that I'd be able to reach them without difficulty, Brent left me to my own devices. I spent the remainder of the day musing over my forthcoming role as interrogator, carefully developing an appropriate line of questioning. I was, after all, visiting these boys in an unofficial capacity— and didn't want their parents to deny me the opportunity to speak with them following some ill-considered faux pas on my part. With a sense of readiness about me, I gave the bus timetable a once-over, and determined to make the twenty-minute journey to Hamerton the following morning. The long hours came and went, and soon enough I found myself in the presence of Richard Gordon. Seventeen at the time, he was a quiet, elusive character, who had little, if anything, to say to me. The boy was escorted to the living room by his unusually tall and overzealous mother, and, annoyingly, was closely monitored by her throughout her mostly one-sided conversation. On her son's behalf, she had a nasty habit of answering all the questions I put to him— and considering that this lady had little to no involvement in Richard's private life, as was evidenced by her total ignorance of everything he'd been party to, her general presence and know-it-all demeanour was of absolutely no benefit whatsoever to my line of inquiry. Pah! In the end, I learned nothing at all from the boy, other than that he appeared to be the shrinking violet of his peer group the one who went along with the ideas of others without question or argument. I did, however, 
gleaned something of interest from the boy's mother, the very curious and possibly relevant fact that another friend of Gordon's circle had recently passed away. It wasn't clear to me whether or not Brent was privy to this fact at the time, though it did occur to me that perhaps the police hadn't considered this other boy's suicide relevant to the case at hand. Mrs. Gordon had very little to say on the matter. She was far too preoccupied with the business of showing me the door. But at least I'd have something else to discuss with the other friend of Grant Smith, Patrick Jones, who lived but a couple of minutes' walk away, on the very same street. Sorry to interrupt, Peter, but how did you know this other boy had committed suicide? In telling me of the boy's passing, Mrs. Gordon had put an imaginary noose around her neck, and, well, you get the picture. Yeah. Yes. As I was saying, Jones lived down the street, so I tottered along, eager as a puppy, and rapped upon his door. Suffice it to say that I was relieved to discover that Jones's mother wasn't quite as overbearing as Gordon's had been. In fact, Mrs. Jones, a patient lady with a pleasant air about her, had offered me a cup of tea, in stark contrast to my experience with Richard's mother, who hadn't offered me so much as a glass of water, and was more than happy to leave the boy and I to our discussions. I suspect that Mrs. Jones was hoping that my line of inquiry, as opposed to that of the police, would open Patrick up somewhat. The moment I stepped into the boy's bedroom, I knew that I'd encountered the group's ringleader. Though Patrick himself was quiet and somewhat restrained, his bedroom told of an individual obsessed with the darker side of life. Monstrous and demonic images adorned his walls, amidst bookshelves filled to the brim with volumes on the occult, ritual magic, and the paranormal. Huge melted candles occupied the windowsill and the numerous tabletops, whereupon piles of jotters and sketchbooks towered their covers stamped with words such as dreams, fantasies, journeys, and visions. Much of it, to my experienced eye, was the virtuous product of the inquiring teenage mind. But some of it, writings on the subject of uh, psychedelic journeys, for example, filled me with a sense of foreboding. The contents of that room, I felt, belonged to a heart of darkness in the making— the boy said he was an artist, an aspiring writer, too, and that the environment he'd built around himself, much to the frustration of his parents, was designed to aid the creative process. To my mind, it was clear that it was more than just the creative process the youngster wished to aid, and there was a pungent odour in the air, evidently belonging to the boy's personal stash of those Fetid jimson-weed pills I'd found at Sutton Bank. I tell you, Diane, the smell of that stuff was foul. And you sure this wasn't just the general pong of a teenager's bedroom? I can assure you it wasn't. Please continue. <clears throat> well, in talking to the young Patrick Jones in that squalid bedroom, I learned that there had been a group of four friends. Patrick, Richard Gordon the late Grant Smith, and one James Barker, the boy who had committed suicide. The group, with Jones at the helm, 
had developed an interest in what they described as walks, jimson-weed-induced psychedelic experiences, in which Patrick would attempt to guide his friends through the strange hallucinatory dreamscapes, he said the drug commonly induced. With his referral to jimson-weed, I asked him how he had first happened upon the drug, or punk, as he and his friends referred to it, and much to my disappointment, the boy claimed to have manufactured the pills himself, a claim I felt was untrue, due to the scarcity of jimson-weed in Britain, and the complexity of the finished product. I was certain that the boy was protecting his source, whomever that might be. A drug dealer? I suspect so, though as I've said, Jones maintains to this day that he manufactured the drug himself. Although he offered <clears throat> little with regards to the passing of his friend, Grant Smith, he was able to talk in detail about the death of his other friend, James Barker. Essentially, Jones, along with Gordon and Smith, his willing accomplices in all supernatural forays, convinced Barker to pop-punk and go for a walk, as it were, guided by Jones. What exactly the punk would do to Barker, and where precisely the walk would take him, was anybody's guess. In answer to my question on how he got into the whole psychedelic journey business, Jones said that the idea simply came to him one day, though, as I've already intimated, I believe the idea came to him much in the way the punk came to him. <laughs> but I digress. The four of them gathered together in Jones's bedroom, and the stage was set for a psychedelic journey. Barker popped the punk, as Jones put it, and went for a walk. Is this the kind of thing you'd read about in, what was it, uh, Fisher's Dreams and Visions? Precisely, Diane. And what dreams and visions that poor boy had! There, in the circle, illuminated by a handful of candles, Jones, Gordon, and Smith listened, as Barker wandered into a strange house at the heart of a vast forest, wherein he met a bent figure, a shadow that walked with a cane, a thing that didn't speak but laughed, laughed relentlessly, laughed when Barker turned to flee, laughed when he found himself lost, laughed as he fell to his knees screaming, and was laughing still, as he was summoned back to reality by a sweating and panicked Patrick Jones. Blimey. Never mind that, Diane. My reaction was similar. But Barker's nightmare didn't end there. He was driven mad, Jones said, prone to uncontrollable outbursts of laughter, whatever the occasion. And in moments of lucidity, all Barker would talk about was the man with the cane, how this figure stalked him at night, mocking and laughing at him. Within a week of his walk, James Barker took his own life. According to Jones, and this was later confirmed by Brent, who unfortunately had to revisit the case, Barker was found hanging from a beam in his bedroom, a huge ear-to-ear -ear grin filling his face. Wait, the grin? Just like Smith? Smith, yes. But it wasn't long after Barker's suicide that young Patrick, too, found himself afraid to go to bed at night. 
Picture the scene, Diane. It's the middle of the night. Jones in his silent bedroom, surrounded by demonic imagery and occult trinkets, fully awake, waiting. Hello? Who, who's there? Who is that? Come on, stop it. Stop that. What do you want? Barker, is that you? Barker? It's, it's nothing. What the hell are you laughing at? <laughs> you see, Patrick's sister believed that it was just her brother laughing in the night. And this continued for weeks, was still happening at the time I met with him, in fact. The laughing man would creep through the house, laughing all the way, until reaching Patrick's bedroom. In response to all this, thinking himself something of an expert in the occult, Jones endeavoured to host another journey into the unknown, and somehow managed to convince the late Grant Smith to pop punk and go for a walk. Sorry, one moment, Peter. Nance? Can you prep some tea and biscuits for the intermission? I'm on it. Again, this is consistently fascinating, Peter. So it is. But that which fascinates usually has a tendency to bite, too. I'm beginning to see that. <laughs> yes, yes. Please continue. Well, as you've probably guessed, Grant Smith went for a walk and, according to Jones, returned disturbed. Just as it was with Barker, Smith found himself within the walls of the same strange house at the heart of a vast forest. But within, it wasn't a man with a cane the boy encountered. It was a creature of some sort, a hairy beast, all mouth, he said, a huge, grinning mouth, you see? And it laughed at him relentlessly. In the days that followed, Smith claimed to be seeing this thing everywhere, in the trees by the park, amongst the hedges by the cemetery, and in the fields by his house, always watching, he said, and always pointing with a bony, outstretched arm, and grinning. And Smith was much the same the last time Jones claimed to have seen him. Babbling he was about the beast, how it was coming for him, how it meant to eat him. Ugh. Now, I think it's important to reiterate that Smith and Parker before him had both used punk, but there was something else, a critical detail that almost slipped Jones's mind during our long conversation. Prior to the group's first psychedelic journey, Barker had been bitten by something in Jones's bedroom. Jones said that he would have forgotten about it completely— if it hadn't been for the fact that Smith, too, had been bitten, prior to his walk. 
and this is where the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle started to fit together, Diane. What if, I thought, a questing wandermoth sent out into the world by our would-be vampire had made its way into Jones's bedroom, stinging Barker and later Smith? What if these hallucinogenic stings, coupled with the boy's punk-induced phantasmagoria, had, in some inexplicable way, afforded Barker and Smith a glimpse through the vampire's conduit into its lair, the so-called strange house at the heart of a vast forest. Another unfortunate setback for our ravenous seducer, wouldn't you say? That's one heck of a theory, Peter. It was, Diane, and that wasn't all. Furthermore, I wondered, could it be possible that the things the boys saw there— Barker, the man with the cane, Smith, the grinning beast, came to some semblance of life, just like the winged furball of Wigan that whisked the Hargreaves girl away. I mean, how else was I to explain what had happened to those youngsters? Well, it was something to work with, anyway. I also surmised that Jones himself must have been stung at some point, too, the laughing man at his bedroom door night after night was surely evidence of such. As for Barker and Smith, they were driven to the brink by their stalking apparitions, Barker to suicide, Smith to hapless delirium. How long these tangible hallucinations might survive for was a point I refused to dwell on for any length of time. The notion always brought me back to the Hargreaves girl— what happened to her, and what became of the creature that took her. I had one final question for young Patrick, though. Was there anything else he could tell me about the strange house the boys had visited on their walks? I asked him to describe the place for me, but, unfortunately, the descriptions offered by Barker and Smith had been vague and dim. What about Richard Gordon? What was his role in all of this? Well, according to Jones, Gordon was only ever a spectator. My initial impression of him had been evidently well-founded. So, I left Jones's place, having reassured him that all would be well, provided he stayed away from the punk. As for the laughing man, I believed that only one thing would stop the apparition in the form of James Barker from showing up at Jones's bedroom door night after night— and that was to locate the strange house at the heart of a vast forest. No easy task. Back at home, I scoured the library for books on the subject of infamous haunted houses and abandoned country estates in North Yorkshire. Having pored over my topographical reference books, I made note of a vast area of coastal moorland, whose isolated farms and Obscure hamlets seemed worthy of further investigation, and it was with that in mind that I decided to hit the road. The city of Manchester was calling. A certain bookshop in the northern quarter, operated by an old acquaintance of mine, the venerable Norman Kane. Okay, Peter. I think that's probably a good place to stop. Certainly. Intermission, Andy. And just in time. Okay, beeps coming in five. Oh, three. Just kill it, will you? <laughs> Dream stealer. Job an owl. Whoa, hey, come on, that's a bit <laughs> harsh, isn't it? 
That's all we have time for today, folks. You've been listening to The Woodrow Show with your host, Diane Woodrow. Today's guest has been the renowned paranormal investigator, Peter Van Melsen. Our conversation on the subject of the Hamilton horror will continue next Thursday at 8pm. In the meantime, be sure to share your thoughts in the comments section. Until next time. Got it, Andy? Yeah, yeah, of course, sir. Okay, Peter. Time for another break. Oh, yes, sir. And time for another cigarette. You have been listening to Hammer and Nails, a Horror Babble original podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Ian and Jennifer Gordon, starring Ian Gordon as Peter Van Melsen and The Laughing Man, Jennifer Gordon as Diane Woodrow, Max Rudd as Andy Perkins, Jess Gordon as Nancy Peterson and Oval Jones, Ben Gordon as Patrick Jones. Story and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Artwork by Duncan Kay. Title music, Van Melson's Theme by David Jeffries. Special thanks to Patrick McCone, producer. Copyright 2022 by Horror Babble.